All right, y'all. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, hers pronouns. And Lisa, we may need to uh, reevaluate whether we uh, provided it in an uncomplicated format, because last week we had so much to give them. It was just yeah. a lot. So how are you doing? I am doing great. It um, She, her pronouns. Um, it's February, so a little bit of whiplash with the fact that January is now gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, although, you know, I'm always very excited to move towards March because of um, the clocks moving forward, right? Yes. And so then we have yes. more light. But outside of that... 31 days evaporated pretty quickly. <laughs> well, and hold on. I don't, I can't remember which is which, but I do remember a few years ago when I was still in higher ed, I was traveling and I went to Phoenix, I believe. And that's an area where the time doesn't change, right? There's certain right. places in the country right. where it doesn't change, but I just don't know which ones, but I do remember that conference. Yeah, Arizona does not move the clock back or forward. I don't, I actually don't know of other states, but um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely a push for it, but no one else has jumped on that bandwagon yet. So, Oh, I wish um, they would. Well, I, I remember seeing the signs in the elevators and I said, I'm glad they posted these signs so that when it's time to go back to the airport, <laughs> where I need to be, when I need to be there. Um, so yeah, I, I wish everyone would get on board. But anyhow, um, good to see you and good to get into these topics this week. Because let me tell you, for the month of February, oh, what have we told y'all? The current events never slow down. There's never a shortage of stuff to talk about. Uh, Lisa, would you agree that most weeks it's not about if we have enough to talk about, it's which things we're going to talk about because it's just a whole buffet. Yeah, um, yeah there is definitely so, a buffet. Yeah, it's a lot going on here. So let's get into phase one specifically. And look, y'all, at the risk of feeling as if we are overemphasizing Taylor Swift in our Taylor Swift world here, um, neither myself or Lisa, neither one of us are like super fans or fans in general. We just are aware of the news. Um, and so what's really interesting about this is that with or without Taylor Swift in this conversation, previously we talked about our caution in regards to AI and its use. And of course, here we go again, Lisa, where now we have a situation going on where there are AI depictions of Taylor Swift um, not clothed, and I don't know what they look like because obviously I didn't go out there looking for them and I would, would never go out and look for them. But again, it's like my brain would have never gone there, but clearly someone's brain went there because Lisa, if you recall, previously we talked about AI and how we put in um, some, we, we looked at some things and some topics about, for example, athletes or sports teams. And so if I put in, I'm here in the Maryland area, y'all. So if I put in Baltimore Ravens player, man, for example, then, you know, you've got the stereotype, the, the helmet, the uniform, so forth. If I put in a Baltimore Ravens woman, then I see, um, again, another stereotype, a woman, long hair, 
voluptuous, large chest, small waist, uh, midriff showing, for example. And so we talked about this, Lisa. This is not news to us, but come on, y'all. How, how do we uh, how do we really address this in such a way that everyone who can be abused and violated by this technology has the ability to consent? Um, the pictures, it's almost like, you know, you can't unring that bell. The photos are out there now. So what exactly can we do other than make our point in court so that things uh, don't happen with other people? But what are your thoughts on all this? Uh, Swifty or not, AI is getting more and more complicated, just like we predicted previously in the vein of race and gender. Now we're going much further. Yeah, I mean, the problem of fake images of, in particular, famous women has been around for a really long time. It has just, mm. it's just on steroids now, right? And the seamlessness mm. with which images can be created and depicted, I mean, the term is quote-unquote deepfake. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, earlier, pre-AI, those images were much more crude right probably done in photoshop and just not as good and now you can't tell the difference between uh, one that has been uh, generated and one that is real right so mm -hmm. it presents enormous issues i mean it's just not surprising to me right like misogyny is real it's everywhere it's in everything so what you know unsurprisingly um this new iteration of image creation is misogynistic right like let's create a naked image of a famous person who cares whether she's consenting to that or not um and then let's just distribute that across the interwebs because you know misogyny so and i don't know how you regulate it i know in colorado there's a bill um in this legislative session that's trying to do some work there and in addition to holding dating apps more accountable for sexually abusive behavior um, which is not AI, right? But it's kind of the same um, online internet exploitation that is happening that um, women in particular are being victimized. And so who do you hold accountable for these images that are generated by AI and then distributed across the interwebs? I mean, they end up everywhere, right? But if you can't track the person that is responsible for the generation of the image like how i don't even know how you slow that tide right like because misogyny is not going anywhere i mean i want it to go somewhere right in the trash mm -hmm. but it mm -hmm. isn't so yeah i feel yep. a little um i mean i'm unsurprised that this happened to taylor swift and i'm also disheartened because i don't know even if there was the political will to do something about it i don't i just I'm not quite sure what that would even be, right? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, here's here's the thing though, Lisa, for, for us, we kind of already predicted the challenges previously with race and gender. And I feel like it, the, the identity wheel is becoming more and more complex as it overlaps with AI, right? So, you know, the misogyny of it, I'm waiting for the misogynoir that will come with it, the trans misogyny that I'm sure will come with it. Like, I'm just thinking down the road how, here we go, y'all, once again, someone created a tool that they thought would be helpful and now it's becoming harmful um, in such a way that, it's questionable that it's even possible to regulate. 
it's it's impossible to control. It's impossible to uh, place restrictions on. Um, I'll share with you, my son um, was um, very much a victim of, how can I say? Um, on I would suggest that it's online bullying because it was photos that were taken without his permission. Um, fortunately, he was clothed, but not fully. And so those photos were literally airdropped across his school. Now, what would, God forbid, that look like if, again, we're tailoring his features or, you know, th that adds yet another layer for young people. Um, and so with all that, I'm just very afraid because I've seen where it can go. And now we're, unfortunately, we're uh, naming places that it could go and how challenging it will be for various identity groups if we don't get as much of a handle on it as possible. And so um, mm -hmm. if and when this goes to court, um, part of me, like you said, is not surprised that it's happening to a very famous global person, name, woman, and at the same time, I really hope if we circle back to privilege, I really hope that she uses her name, her uh, image, her, her likeness to fight for other people that will never have the ability to fight such a thing in court, would never have the resources to do so, wouldn't even know where to begin with it. Um, so that's my hope to see that play out, um, that she can right. be that voice. Yeah, yeah hopefully. And she was we'll that see. voice a while back, right? She had a court case, I'm forgetting what it is, but it was some um, court case that involved abuse and victimization. Mm -hmm. And yes. she like, she did it for like a buck, right? That's the damages she wanted, because it was more mm -hmm. like a point that she was trying to make. Yep. But I don't even like, like, let's say Taylor Swift or anyone, I don't know who they would take to court. Like you have to have a person that you're suing for, um, you know, defamation. I don't know whether it would be defamation, um, but that person, there isn't someone to sue. Right. And I think that's the problem with AI. And it's not that AI, AI is only as powerful as humans make it right so right. there has to be like ai you know this isn't the terminator right skynet <laughs> this is like right. you know so like someone is entering in instructions asking ai to create nude photos of women right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. famous or otherwise and then distributing them so that's the person that you would want to sue but i don't know like how you find that person because that person is probably quite smart and is able to hide themselves right right and yeah. that's what and that's what i was thinking about too you know obviously we yes they would be able to hide themselves and at the same time in the absence of the creator i'm assuming and this is a huge assumption because i'm probably the furthest thing from an attorney i'm assuming that the platform that perpetuates it or doesn't shut it down quickly would be those that would be the next best uh entity to implicate that's all i can think of um and there you know there are ai companies and ar platforms but at the very same time it's like mm, not I, I don't know i don't know i i just i know that they did not create it but if they carry it then what does that mean for their responsibility in the duplication or at least not the the cessation of it. I'm like, mm, oh, that's a I huge think. issue. And that's like way above our pay grade, right? But that is a exactly. massive legal issue because YouTube and Google were sued related to um, 
I forget the issue now, but it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, there is that rule, that federal law that prevents um, social media companies from being held responsible for what is on the platform. So you like a Google that, you know, returns those images in in search results currently Mm -hmm. is not liable for doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe that the kind of increase and um, yeah, uh awareness the increase in awareness and the fact that it's elevated through taylor swift but through other famous people too right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. will draw more attention to how do you then hold those intermediaries accountable if you can't locate the creator um but i come back to its misogyny right because you could have chat gpt you could have these ai technologies and they could be used solely for good but they're not being used solely for good because you have bad actors who are misogynistic and think that it's totally fine to create an image, a naked image of someone without their consent and then distribute it across the internet, right? For all to see. They, they don't give a shit about the harm that they're causing, right? Um, no, no. I mean, I'm sure they probably think it's funny, which it isn't just for the no. record. It no, is so someone, well, and that's the thing, someone's being entertained by it. And that's, you know, going back to my point at the top of the conversation, I'm aware of what's going on. I directly linked it back to our previous podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yet at the very same time, I also wasn't one of those people where it's like, oh, let, Google, let me go find it real quick. Like there are some people that that will continue to perpetuate yeah. the misogyny in that way. If you don't go looking for it, then you can't perpetuate it, or at least you're not a bad actor in the process of perpetuating. But for the folks that created it, the folks that carry it, and then the folks that create, almost creating a demand for it, that's yet another layer mm. where you, you are complicit in perpetuating the problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think this is going to come back. We're going to be talking about this again, probably multiple times, because like you said, yep. at the top of this phase, it isn't going away, right? It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And as technology evolves, so will the uh, methods to abuse it and abuse oh, yeah. people with it. Right. Oh yeah. Um, Absolutely. All Absolutely. right. So since we're not going to solve that problem today, <laughs> Right, right. Um, let's move on to phase two, which is another problem we are likely, unlikely to solve today too, but mm-hmm. we have lots of opinions on. Um, so, okay, so I was scrolling through my Instagram account and I follow The Atlantic, which is a magazine. Um, and one of the articles that popped up was related to a recent um court ruling that uh, allowed a court case to go ahead by a former professor of Penn State um, who is white accusing Penn State of creating a hostile work environment by requiring him to participate in diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives that in Mm -hmm. his telling um, targeted white people, um, only painted Mm -hmm. white people and white professors in a negative light and like there was nothing Mm -hmm. positive that was associated with his whiteness and so he ended up leaving uh, Penn State and then has sued them. The Mm -hmm. claim, his original claim had multiple levels and I think every single claim has been dismissed except the one that Mm -hmm. um, is related to Penn State creating a hostile environment and so I'll read you a couple of quotes here from the Atlantic article and we'll link it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But essentially, um, Penn State's approaches to race and DEI, as described in his complaint, 
plausibly amount to pervasive harassment, said the judge. Um, she qualified her ruling, noting that discussing in an educational environment the influence of racism on our society does not necessarily um, violate federal law. Also, she said that training on concepts such as white privilege, white fragility, and critical race theory can contribute positively to nuanced and important conversations. However, the distinction that she made and why she's letting this case go forward is that mm. the way these conversations are carried out in the workplace matters. So he talked about um, a couple of a couple of occasions where one time there was an activity where white people had to hold their breath longer than folks of color in the room so that the white people could kind of understand pain and mm -hmm. that there was a um, a video that they had to watch that was something to the effect of why white people are bad. I forget the name of it, but mm -hmm. so the judge is saying that the method of education in a higher education institution related to privilege, mm -hmm. power, oppression matters. And if it's mm -hmm. not, if it's done in an essentialist way, then mm -hmm. that could contribute to a hostile work environment. So I have all the thoughts, but Shauna, you are, you do a lot of DEI education in higher education, but also beyond higher ed, you do it in business as well. And mm -hmm. so you're talking about all these same things that this professor, this ex-professor is claiming create a hostile environment. So I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, the the Penn State professor is a, if I'm not mistaken, but please correct me, um, is already in the echelon of extreme privilege. White, male, highly educated. I don't recall if, if he was if he's was tenured or not, um, but all those things apply. I'm not tenured. Okay, so um, so assistant professor, um, and yet still quite privileged um, in a higher education setting. Not not fully because he wasn't associate or, or full professor, where you get kind of into that untouchable category of of academia. But close, knocking on the door of it, right? Much closer than most folks will ever be in higher education. What gets really interesting about this is a few things I'm thinking of because I've been that person that literally my sole function was to educate faculty on these particular topics. Um, when I first read this story, particularly the judge came off as I, I got a little frustrated by reading it, partially because I felt like as an educator who does this for a living, it sounds like tone policing. Like, yeah, we want you to do the education, but you can only do it in this way, in this form of delivery. Um, anybody that's heard, you know, I, I've been in DEI trainings about the very same topics that I train on and can tell you that they are polar opposite in their delivery than I would be. Um, and so given that there's so many different forms of delivery that it is a matter of voice and how you approach the work. I get that. And I, I see where they're coming from with that. And at the same time, I don't know whether or not this particular faculty member is is in this group that I call the insatiables. Like you, you could whisper it smiling, sugary sweet, and it would still be hostile to them. No matter how, no matter how gently you delivered the content area, it would still be hostile environment for them. Then there's other folks where I've been in situations and I've been told this is not based on what I think, this is based on the responses and the evaluations of people who have sat in my DEI trainings, where, for example, they said in writing, wow, I was expecting this to be a really 
cuff training. I was expecting to feel beat up when I left the training. I felt more knowledgeable and felt in more control of what I can make into a positive work environment based on race, gender, et cetera, et cetera. And so those types of responses told me that, oh, interesting. I must not deliver the way a lot of other people do, and my delivery may be different. So given that, this goes back to a conversation I literally just had before we uh, started recording, Lisa, around not just tone at all, but it's around our industry. I'm I'm a I'm gonna say something real controversial about the DEI industry, and we can go there. And Lisa, please interrupt me if you feel differently. There are there, there's the whole system, whether it's organizations, various industries, et cetera, that don't know our field the way we know our field. Given that, any DEI person will do. They could be somebody that's just passionate about the work and has no professional experience or skill set. They could be a novice where they're really good at programming, celebratory events, things like that. They kind of are in the middle. And then you have folks that are true DEI strategists that look high level all the way down. But to the untrained perspective, any of those folks will do. And it won't. And so what can happen is that when you're working with systems, like I'm, I'm thinking about, especially in a university environment, you're not just dealing with the system of race. You're also dealing with faculty, staff, student strat, uh, stratification in the organization. You're dealing with what I just asked about, tenure stratification. There are certain things that even a uh, full, full, t- full tenured professor, African-American woman, cannot say compared to a white male that just walked in as an assistant professor. That's the literally the level of nu- nuance that you have to deal with when you're training such folks in such environment. And so with that, it's incumbent upon DEI educators, trainers, et cetera, to know what type of environment you're walking into. And as much as, yes, all of these topics are hard no matter how you deliver it, are we delivering in an attack method or are we delivering in a scholarly method? Or are we delivering in a practitioner method where we're giving both the challenge and the solution? What's the form of delivery? Now, I don't know because I wasn't there, but I'm just begging the question, what was the form of delivery? Because I have heard some training that I'm like, well, shit, I didn't want to do anything to fix it either because I feel like you just, you know, I've, I've been 12 rounds here versus Oh, I'm like the the phrase you use, Lisa, I feel more educated on the topic and therefore I feel empowered to do something. So I'm not at all about white comfort at all. But what I am saying is that you were hired or I was hired. I'll speak for myself. I've been hired to equip people. It's hard to be equipped when you just beat them up. Yeah, they're going to have some hard conversations and some hard feelings, but they should still have the ultimate outcome of feeling more equipped because that was the point that you came in for. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a whole lot to say about that. And that's more implicating DEI folks who are trainers. What right. is your tone? Examine your tone. You can't use the same, how can I say? You, you can't use the same delivery method with any and every group. You just can't. And so are you flexible mm-hmm. and nuanced enough not to code switch, but to know your audience in such a way that they can be reached? Because a faculty yeah. member that's tenured versus a community member down the street will hear the same thing quite differently. So are you nuanced enough to be able to deliver it in a way that's useful? Yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah, he's actually an adjunct professor, so he's not even on a tenure track or was not on a tenure track. So he had even kind of less power in that faculty hierarchy, Ooh, yeah, but, but still sure. left the institution and sued them. So he obviously thinks that he has quite a lot of personal power. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the hold your breath longer white people to feel what that might yeah, I don't either. Yeah. Feel like like I I think there's probably another yeah. way you could communicate that. Um I don't know where he falls in your kind of list of of white people's resistance to DEI training. He's probably mm -hmm. one of those folks that know DEI training is going to be appropriate. And I do just want to underscore your comment about white comfort because I think the piece that is missed that is often missed when we talk about DEI training you know, and the assault that is currently underway on DEI training and programs in the United States is that folks of color, women, people with disabilities, right, they are living kind of every day in a state of hosti hostility. So like mm -hmm. environments, work or otherwise, are just permanently hostile to them in varying Hello. ways, right? Right. right? And so you white cisgender men with no visible disabilities, um, you get to roll through those environments as you please and then you're asked to think about and reflect on your white privilege and the way that might show up in your teaching and suddenly the environment is hostile i mean i might be oversimplifying the situation because there are outliers right i've definitely um seen you know when in my work around sexual violence prevention you have universities and colleges that do stupid shit, right that and then those dumb moves get elevated as examples of why there's a problem when they're just outliers, right? And the vast majority of schools and colleges are just kind of in the middle of the bell curve and they're doing things right, right? But then everyone gets like elevated and up in arms about the fact that these, these horrible things are happening, which is kind of what I think is happening here, right? Like how many schools and colleges are having white people hold their breath? Like probably not that many. But, and so that comes back to your point around facilitation, because it isn't just DEI professionals, it's also facilitation. That is a skill to be able to engage well, just any, on any topic, but to engage Girl. well and facilitate effectively on difficult conversations, that's really hard to do. Yeah. It, it is, well, th this goes back to my conversation I was having right before we logged on to record, is that, again, I cannot stress this enough, DEI as a trainer, as an educator, as a strategist, all that stuff is built upon various skill sets. And I, I'm real clear on what those skill sets are, but that's not how it's perceived by folks that will say any DEI person will do. So Lisa, it would be like you and I saying, okay, let's just pick the most passionate person and that's their job. Like, you know, whoever cares the most about it, you know, Lisa, you and I care a lot that each other's heart beat works and that it's doing the right thing and it's pumping blood throughout the body that does not equip us to be freaking cardiologists and, and heart surgeons does it right we care deeply but not everyone has the skill we didn't go to medical school we didn't do residency we're, we're not trained surgeons that's the challenge with the dei training even the facilitation and lisa i think this is super important going into a presidential election year going into it and emerging from it is that we're going to increasingly have more conversations about things that we inherently disagree on and if you don't have people coming in the room that are skilled to do that work every conversation is going to be deemed an argument they're just not equipped and so i feel very similarly to this is that 
I know people who know all the ins and outs and corners of DEI, but they could not facilitate a conversation with anybody on the planet, not because they're not good people and not because they're not knowledgeable. It's because it's a layer skill set that applies to the work. And so going back to what I was saying before, any professional will not do. You have to have the, the person that has the right content area and the right skill set on facilitation, like you mentioned, to do it well in such a way that it creates change. Nobody's out here trying to hurt people's feelings. We're out here to create the change that you say you want, not to hurt people's feelings or, or any of that. That's not the case at all. So, yeah, it, I, mm -hmm. I can see both sides of it because I've been there. Like most of these cases that yeah. I read, I'm thinking, yep, I've been there. I've done it. Mm. <laughs> so um, it, it's more complicated than we want to think here. But well, let me guide yeah. us into phase three, Lisa, because this is one that popped up um, that I was really concerned about for a number of different reasons. Um, the execution of Kenneth Smith in Alabama by nitrogen gas, okay, which usually evokes nitrogen hypoxia. But what I think is really uh, hard hitting for me is that you know this is the year the the 75th anniversary of the human rights act and so you know with me i i continue to think about who gets to determine what's humane as a precursor question to what is humane right um and so with this i'm thinking about this this person um and what right do any of us have to determine like perceived pain for example like unless you're testing on animals and i'm not saying i agree with that either but who gets to determine what the perceived pain is which therefore determines a method of execution um and how that piece of the science with you which you and i neither one of us are equipped to talk about the science piece of it but how does that intersect with human rights and the reason why I ask this question is because this sounds painful. This, we knew going into it that this wasn't going to be something that was quick and smooth and easy in any sense of the word. This person could, and I believe did suffer for about 10 minutes or so. What does that mean for who we are, especially as a country, and I know it trickles down to the state, um, around execution and this person's human rights, I'm I'm just so torn. Again, we've got a third phase, y'all, that we have no answers for, but we're trying to grapple with the complexity of it. And Lisa, I'm just torn about it. And I know that every state has its own form, uh, primary and secondary form of execution, but this one seems too experimental at the moment. Um, if we have to choose a yeah. method, this seems yeah. too experimental at the moment. Well, and that was the argument, right? That it was experimental. They didn't know what was going to happen. Um, is it cruel and unusual punishment? Um, yeah, and I don't think, it, you know, Alabama argued that, you know, he would be unconscious within seconds and it would be painless and he would essentially just kind of go to sleep and not wake up, right? And that's definitely not what happened, like you said. Not what happened. Um, but you're raising... I mean, this is ethics, right? This is kind of the bedrock around um, the the discipline of, of ethics, human ethics, right? How do we define humanity? What is and is not acceptable? I mean, obviously, 
there's a larger conversation happening about that right now with everything that's happening in the Middle East, right? In terms of whose whose life is valued more or less. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the UK. There's no capital punishment there. I've never been a supporter of it. I do not think it's an effective um, deterrent to, you know, tell someone to teach people not to harm or kill others by killing them just feels like, asinine right like i just don't it just doesn't seem logical to me at all um but mm-hmm. the larger questions that you're raising i think are likely not grappled with enough because no. you know you had said how do we understand pain how do we understand the experience yes. of pain if we have not been in that same situation and so since none of us have been on the precipice of death through nitrogen gas right through that hypoxia then none of us actually know what that feels like and still don't right because um kenneth smith was executed he did die and so there's no way to understand that outside of the people that watched it happen and then can infer the degree to which he felt pain based on his body movements um yes you know And when we talk about humanely killing, that feels like an oxymoron, right? Right. Isn't that the way? Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like that fits. So, right, right. It's, yeah, I think it's it's a much more ethical, for me, it's a very deeply ethical question, right? For others, it's a religious question, right? Eye for an eye. um, And and that feels aligned with their, um, their religious ethics, I guess. I mean, that's not where I stand on things um mm-hmm. and how yeah science and human rights i don't really I, yeah that i mean yeah, i feel like you've raised this enormous question <laughs> i don't have enough time to talk about it but i wonder if people are giving it that thought that you're offering or are they just saying well he murdered someone so he deserves it and then like that's where they leave it right like are they actually thinking through the the physical consequences but also the spiritual moral consequences of that you know right yeah absolutely well and you know when i the the article kind of struck me um for a number of different reasons because you know the science of it being experimental you know the ethical piece of things so when i was in seminary 100 years ago y'all um i read this book um i got to choose the book that i read this is this is kind of morbid, y'all, but it's just the truth of the matter. Um, I read this book. I found the, the title of it. It was called Death Row Chaplain, and it was written in 1962, actually, uh, by Byron Eshelman. And this uh, chaplain kind of wrote a memoir of a memoir, if you will. So eyewitness accounts of death row executions um, and literally querying capital punishment itself. And I mean, we're talking about like giving the account of what biologically and physically happens that they can actually see Um, a litany of final words, um, last meals, all those different things that occur. And it was so interesting to me because no, it's not all the same, um, depending on what faith tradition that you're coming from. Even within my own uh, Christian faith tradition, people fall in different places in regards to that. Some people feel very Old testamenty about it and some feel very New testamenty about it. So, you know, your point, your great point, Lisa, earlier about, you know, eye for an eye calling for capital punishment. That is very Old Testament perspective that people still feel strongly about. Yet at the same time, 
New Testament era would say something differently and that it's not up to a human being to determine the length of life for an individual. You know, so all of that brought together um, in that particular book, you know, at first I was thinking, um, the, this was before I read that book, I'm thinking to myself, let's, let's think of the person or people I love most. God forbid someone takes their life. Yep, I want that life back. That's just the petty in me, y'all. Forgive me, but that's the petty in me. Then at the same time, when I back away from it and I think, well, who am I to make that choice? Who am I, as angry, as hurt, as frustrated, as mad, sad, whatever, who am I to make that choice? And so I quickly flip-flopped from my Old Testament thought to my New Testament thought because I was not willing to overstep my own human theological boundaries of, yeah, I want that life real bad, but that's not my call. God will have to deal with that. And so with that, the chaplain's perspective in that particular book, and there's been numerous books written by chaplains on death row um, in regards to their perspectives and so forth. I think what was most profound about the book um, was that even if you still landed on the side of being pro-capital punishment, you saw it quite differently. You saw it in such a way that it was no longer, oh, this is easy. And this is, you know, you're you're seeing like human excrement on the floor or blood coming out of someone's ear. Like you're you're seeing very graphic um, through through their words, through their books. You're seeing very graphic responses to situations that uh, will make you rethink your perspective, not change, but rethink that it's not as easy as you think. And Lisa, we have used this word probably the entirety of our podcast careers here, messy, is messy. It's not as simple as you think. It's not clean cut. Um, there's another book that I'm pulling up that I wanna read eventually down the road that talks about the folks that actually have to come in and take the body away after, like all those perspectives, you're not thinking about that when you're thinking about, okay, you came in here and you did this crime, you must pay. You're not thinking about the nuances of it. And so I've just, as I saw the article, it reminded me about that book, the chaplaincy of those folks that are sent to comfort people that did not comfort others. And what, do, what does that mean as a mirror reflection of our own understanding of humanity? I want my mirror to, to look decent. You know, I, I want my mirror to show a decent person that's living out the faith that I say that I am, or just being a good person, even if you're not a, a person of faith. My ethics need to align and Given the science of what we're seeing right now, my ethics ain't aligning with that right now. It's just not. And I, I haven't got my finger on it completely, but my ethics aren't aligning with it. And based on yeah. the article even existing, I don't think a lot of people's ethics are aligning with this method quite yet, Lisa. So yet again, another question with no answer. Yeah, I mean, it's the first, yeah, very first time that it's been used. I um, may have already said that, I can't remember, but um I just, and the other piece that we're not tapping into here, right, because we're just kind of focusing on the ethics of who gets to decide who lives and dies is the fact that, you know, in the United States specifically, we know that African-American men have been incarcerated at much greater rates and often for crimes they did not commit and then yes. have been sentenced to death because of racism, right? Um, and so there are numerous, too many to count um, men, particularly men who have lost their lives um through capital punishment when they have been erroneously um convicted of a crime because the criminal legal system is racist so 
you've got a, a method of punishment that is ethically dubious at best, I would say, and then you have got a misapplication or a discriminatory application of the punishment to a particular group of people that have been, you know, subjugated in US history uh, in an ongoing way, right? I mean, we're not yeah. obviously getting to that, but that's an important kind of puzzle piece, I think, as we think about your initial question, Shauna, about who gets to decide who is human and who is not and who is worthy of humanity and who is not, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the just to, you know, kind of wrap this particular phase up, you know, thinking about how many times do we hear stories, usually of African-American men, uh, if they are freed, uh, exonerated, it, it it always tugs at my heart, right? Because it's it's one of those conundrums where, like, for example, Marvin Haynes is one of them that is a bit more recent, I think happened in the last month, um, where he was charged with murder back in the early 2000s, I think 2003, 2004, convicted. And then 20 years later, he's freed in Minnesota. I don't care how much money this man gets what have you there is nothing that replaces decades of your life not one thing and i now maybe i just have a bad memory but i've yet to recall a story like this where someone was not a black male that was exonerated what if things went to the worst case scenario where he lost his life then maybe later on science reveals that oh this person was actually innocent. So that's why I'm a, you know, a big supporter of things like the Innocence Project. If you haven't read or watched the movie, Just Mercy, all of those speak to what could happen um, when this type of approach is in the wrong hands. So just trying to be a human, seeing other humans, Lisa, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and I, I think we have probably raised some pretty deep questions for folks to think about. Um, and yeah. how, you know, it intersects with race and gender and um, stereotypes and yeah. humanity, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. I think we'll leave it there. Um, yeah. Absolutely. On that, on that happy note, <laughs> <laughs> um, we yeah. will wrap up this week's episode. So hopefully these um, three phases today have got you thinking, because actually now that I'm thinking, you know, they are, they are kind of thinkers, right? Like they're not, they're messy. Like you said, they're complex. Um, so... Mm -hmm. How do people yeah. get a hold of us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, if you have thoughts on any of the topics that we had earlier, look, especially if you are a, um, I don't even know what type of attorney it should be, an attorney that focuses on technology and AI, hit us up, please, we, help us. Um, but between now and next week, make sure that you um, reach out to us. You can uh, watch this and previous episodes on YouTube under Unfazed, Unedited. Uh, catch us on Apple Podcasts. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn. Usually LinkedIn is where the, the good stuff is because we remind you of the pod, but we also make sure that we link articles that are relevant to things that we've talked about in the last week. So you can get a deeper dive than even our podcast with that information. Um, and then of course, if you have a question that you want us to answer on the podcast itself, you can send us an email at info at unfazedpodcast.com or just go to our website unfazedpodcast.com to access everything everything you need um but if you like this episode please like it go on to youtube and subscribe it's free you're not paying anything 
go to subscribe, leave a review, share it with your friends or your coworkers, uh, folks that need to hear some of these conversations in this phase of your life. So we'll see you next week. See you next week.